You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. Hey, everybody, I'm back from my summer vacation. A big thank you to Brian Safi and Aaron Gibson from the Throwing Shade podcast for filling in on the top of the show rant a few weeks ago and to Anna Marie Cox from MTV News and the VMAs this weekend for also filling in with the top of the show rant. Really appreciate the reach around, guys. Really appreciate the help. And a big thank you, note of personal privilege, a big thank you to everyone in Austria who conspired to make my trip there. My summer vacation, so much fun. So thanks, everybody in Graz, Vienna, and Monsi. And little travel tip for Americans who are thinking about going to Austria, Graz. It's a city you've never heard of in Austria because nothing, not a single frame of Sound of Music was filmed there. So you've never heard of it. Happens to be the second largest city in Austria and it's great. And you should go, particularly if you've been to Salzburg and you want to get far, far away from all the Sound of Music fetishists, get thee to Graz. Go. So I'm back and I wanted to open the show this week. I wanted a top of the show rant that was all about Donald fucking Trump. I have some things to get off my chest, but I'm going to have to put off a Donald Trump rant for a week because of the news that's passing through the fan today as we sit down to record the top of the show about everyone's favorite disgraced and re-disgraced and re-re-disgraced former Congress member Anthony Weiner, who is caught swapping texts again or sex again with a woman who is not his wife. The New York Post had the goods. It turns out for the last year and a half, Wiener was flirting and swapping sex with a woman in California, a woman who happens to be a Trump supporter, as it turns out. And she took all the lurid screenshots to the Murdoch-owned right-wing tabloid in New York, and they splashed it all over the cover. New York Post, exclusive daddy sexts while taking care of Tot. The great New York Post headline, hate the paper, right-wing scandal sheet, terrible paper, terrible paper run by terrible people. But you got to give some props to the headline writer who came up with Pop Goes the Wiener. Now, let me get this off my – before I say anything else, because believe it or not, I'm about to come to the defense of Anthony Wiener. Before I say anything else, Anthony Wiener clearly has a reckless, self-destructive compulsion. I feel bad for his wife, Huma Abedin, and – for his kid, who is pictured on the cover of the New York Post with Anthony Weiner, because one of the sects that he sent to this woman in New York, who is a Trump supporter, who took these screen grabs and images and pictures and conversations to the New York Post, is him laying in bed with his sleeping toddler beside him. Quoting from the New York Post here, the stay-at-home cad... Good one, New York Post. Good one. The stay-at-home cad shot the revealing photo while discussing massage parlors near my old apartment... Shortly after 3 a.m. on July 31st, 2015, a screenshot of the exchange shows. Wiener was clearly aroused by his conversation with the 40-something divorcee when he abruptly changed the subject. Someone just climbed into my bed, Wiener wrote. Really? She responded. Wiener then hit send on the cringe-inducing image which shows a bulge in his white jockey brand boxer briefs and his son cuddled up to his left, wrapped in a light green blanket. I'm cringing, as I'm sure you are, and now let me say this for the record, responsible parents, even extremely horny ones, do not include images of their children when sexting with strangers on the internet. 
or with anyone on anything anywhere. Ich ug gross yuck blech. That said, making private sex messages public, do it to anyone else, anyone other than Anthony Weiner, and you are the asshole. Do it to Anthony Weiner, and he's the asshole. Why this double standard? Posting dirty pictures or videos that were shared with you privately or made with you privately without the consent of the person in those pictures or videos, there's a name for that. It's called revenge porn, and it's a crime in many, many states. It happens to be a crime in the state where Wiener's latest untrustworthy sexed buddy resides in California. It is a crime to disseminate or distribute or share or post images, videos, photos, sexts that were sent to you it is a crime, and now I'm quoting from the statute, if the persons agree or understand that the image remained private, or the person distributing the image knows or should know that distribution of the image will cause serious emotional distress, and the person depicted suffers that distress. If so, you are guilty of disorderly conduct. Crime in California. Once again, let there be no mistake, I'm just going to keep repeating this, sending out crotch shots with your kid in them? Deeply fucked up. Ick, ugh, gross, black, wrong, get help. But if it's wrong, if it's in fact criminal for someone to distribute private sex messages by putting them up on the internet, sending those same private sex messages to the New York fucking post so they can put them on the internet and Twitter and Facebook and Instagram so they can do that for you, that's just as wrong and should be just as criminal. Yes, yes, as people are screaming at me on Twitter this morning, Wiener should have learned his lesson by now. He should have known better. But if you think Wiener had it coming, because he should have known better, because he had to know he was a target by now, this is not his first trip to the, this particular rodeo, because he had to know his pictures would be widely shared if they got out yet again, then you must think that the victims of the fappening had it coming too. Remember the fappening? That was when a whole bunch of celebrities, female celebrities, had their private sext messages yanked off the cloud and thrown up on the internet. Every celeb out there whose nude photos have ever been leaked or stolen and widely shared had to know that trolls and tabloids and paparazzi are after them too, that they are targets, that their pics would be widely shared if they ever got out. So it just seems to me that if what was done to the lovely and talented Jennifer Lawrence was wrong, and it was, and if what was done to the lovely and hilarious Leslie Jones, and my heart goes out to Leslie Jones, if that was wrong, and it was, then what's been done to the skeezy and compulsive Anthony Weiner is just as wrong. He has done wrong. He has wronged his wife, Huma, who has now left him. They are separating. She has had enough. She has suffered enough. He has wronged her. He's wronged his kid. The New York Post has wronged this kid as well by putting that picture on the cover of the newspaper. That said, all of that acknowledged, Anthony Weiner has also been wronged here. And I think we would be able to see it more clearly if he wasn't so skeezy and compulsive and if he didn't have a penis, frankly. We sometimes have a hard time recognizing when men are on the receiving end of abuse that women are much more likely to be targeted with or, or abuse that women are much more likely to suffer and endure sexual harassment, rape, revenge, porn, domestic violence. When it flows toward men, when men are on the receiving end of that, we sometimes have a hard time sympathizing 
And maybe rightly so, because men usually dish that shit out. And maybe there's a bit of collective guilt they had it coming when a man is on the receiving end of that. Doesn't make for that individual man who's going through it, doesn't make it any less painful. It doesn't make, even in the case of Anthony Weiner, it doesn't make it any less wrong. All right, next week we'll rant about Donald Trump, I promise, and his bullshit outreach to African-American voters, which is almost identical to his bullshit outreach to LGBT voters. We'll talk about that at the top of the show next week. This show, this week, we have selections from our recent live show in Chicago and coming up on the Magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast, which you can subscribe to at www.savagelovecast.com. We have author and advice columnist Heather Haverleski here to talk shop and talk about her new book. Coming right up. Your questions, so many of them. Here we go. Sometimes I sneeze and my prostate feels like it's going to roll out of my ass. Is that normal? No, that is not. (laughs) My relationship with my sexy bearded daddy is pretty much perfect. Any advice on student loan debt? Nope. There you go, Tracy, a one-word answer. How about that? Dan, I am in a newer relationship that is going really well, mostly. There have been a few small incidents in which my boyfriend has lied or condoned lying about small non-relationship issues, but still, do I let this concern my trust in him? Everybody lies. A relationship is a myth that two people create together, and myths are built of pleasing lies and little lies and white lies and big fucking lies to cover up massive betrayals that if exposed would destroy the relationship, which you may or may not want destroyed. So yeah, if he's lying to you about little stuff, that doesn't necessarily mean he's lying to you about big stuff, but maybe he is, but maybe you want him to. What is your stand on ass play? Really? Here's a fun story, though, about ass play. (laughs) 25 fucking years ago, when I started writing Savage Love for The Stranger in Seattle, I got some interest. I got a phone call from editors of other papers. Um, The Village Voice called, thinking they might want to pick up the column, but they thought there was too much anal in it, and could I dial it back for New York? (laughs) And I said no. And then they waited five more years to pick it up. And it was the same thing in Chicago. The reader called me, the then editor of the Chicago Reader called me, and they were thinking about picking up the column, but there was just too much butt-fucking in it. And I said, and there always will be butt-fucking in it because people have questions about butt-fucking, and here I am, ready and willing and able to answer them. Uh, And then they came around, and five years later, my butt-fucking column was in the uh, Chicago Reader. How can I break my love affair with my vibrator? Why would you want to? (laughs) If it works, it works. Now, there are some people who believe they've become dependent on vibrators, uh, some women people, and some not women people, because not all women have vaginas, or all vaginas have women. Please don't glitter me. (laughs) Uh, But some people require this tool in order to climax, and maybe you're one of those people. There's an easy way to figure out if you are one of those people, which is to stop using your vibrator for a while and see what happens. And if you stop using your vibrator for a while and you cannot climax, then pick up that tool and fucking use it. Most of the clitoral tissues uh, are buried deep inside. The 
exposed glands, what people call the clitoris, which is only the tip of the clitoris or the head of the clitoris, um, is just a little bit of it. And most of it's inside. The erectile chambers, the shaft, uh, is deep inside. And just as some men uh, come just by jerking off basically the head of their dick, and they can come, some men have to stroke the whole shaft and play with the balls and touch the taint, which is a, the root of the dick, right? Some men, when they jack off, they're playing with all of it, and they need to do that to come. Well, there are some women who can come just by playing with the head, just by playing with the glands, the exposed part. There are some women who need to play with all of it, but it's all fucking inside. And the quickest way to play with that to stimulate the rest of the clitoral tissues for a lot of women, or the only way, or the only effective way, is a vibrator. And if you are one of those women, put a power strip next to your bed... Lay in a bunch of vibrators, dump any guy who has a problem with it, and do what your pussy needs done. <laughs> to get off. So don't end your love affair with your vibrator. Just tell your next boyfriend that you're polyamorous. <laughs> my husband gets super turned on by my nylons, even beige ones. What's that about? That's about super simple way to turn the husband on and reliable, and you should be very grateful that it's nylons and not shitting in your mouth or something horrible. <laughs> that you have this switch on him that you can flip at pretty much at will. When you want dick, you just have to go pull on a pair of nylons. That is a superpower. And what's up with that? Who the fuck knows? Nobody knows. Read Perv by Jesse Baring, who's been a frequent guest expert in Savage Love and on the Lovecast. They don't really know where kinks come from, but they think it's tied to our capacity for abstract thought, tied to speech, that it's often experiences early in life, random. People just, their erotic imagination snaps onto something, and kids are exposed to something pre-puberty, well pre-puberty, and it just clicks and snaps into place, and there's no controlling it or controlling for it. So could be worse, right? He could have snapped on something. He could have been watching Dexter when he was four and snapped on that. <laughs> and you're like, oh, really? I got to get saran wrapped to a table again? <laughs> Cis female, I'm attracted to both males and females, but I feel yucky about the bisexual label. I was told I could use queer to self-identify, but I thought that was reserved for gender queer. Help! Well, go to college and you will discover... That queer is not just for gender queer, never was just for gender queer. Queer means not straight. Queer is genus gay, in my case, is species. Homo sapien, genus species, right? So you are queer by. Queer is the umbrella term that unites all of us who are not breeders, not straight people. Breeders, heterosexuals, that's our hate term for you. But it's really not a hate term, although some straight people react to it that way. I don't have any children. Don't call me a breeder. Well, it's still a piano if no one's fucking playing it. <laughs> My completely amazing partner always milks two or three loads out of me before she locks me in chastity. How much semen can an average guy make in one sitting if he really tries? <laughs> it all depends. 
See, this is, this is one of those questions you get when you write a sex advice column where it's really not a question, it's a brag. And that's awesome that you guys have this amazing sex life and you've incorporated chastity play into your deal and you're both really enjoying it and it's really fun. But you don't really have a question. Um, a guy can make as much semen as that guy can make. So you know how much semen the most important guy, the, the only relevant guy to your situation can make, and that's you. So how much semen can you make? Um, you and your girlfriend can find that out. Eventually, guys can have what's called a dry orgasm, where they, they feel all those orgasmic sensations, but nothing is come. They're little puffs of air coming out of their dick. <laughs> so two or three, maybe four is the charm. Maybe four will be your dry puff of air orgasm. Is it bad for me, 30, almost 31, to sleep with a 22-year-old? Before you say yes, before I say yes... Yes, it is bad for you to sleep with a 22-year-old because I want them all for myself. (laughs) Before you say yes, I feel like he is too sweet and innocent, and I would be taking advantage. We work together, and he is so hot. I can show you a picture on my phone. All right. This is, I can only make... Where are you? Well, you should definitely fuck some sense into him so he takes that nose ring out. But those are lovely blue eyes. He needs to get little, rid of the little, like, rat face mustache. Like, you're the older, wiser person who's going to tell him to shave and to take the nose ring out. And so, yeah, you should definitely fuck him because somebody, somebody's got to lower the boom on some of his fashion and personal grooming choices. And it's, almost, it's always better to hear, like, shave the little rat face mustache off, and lose the nose ring from someone who's blowing you. So yeah, definitely fuck that dude. (laughs) And follow the campsite rule. I'm a bottom, my boyfriend is as well. Uh, I've been topping him for five months now, gay dudes. How do I get him to top me once in a while? Use your words. <laughs> Tell him you would like some dick in you and not just be the dick in him. And then you can have a conversation about whether he can top you. Uh, some folks can't, are bottoms only and they really can't top. Some gay folks are bottoms only and really can't top when it comes to anal. And maybe he's one of those folks, in which case you invest in a set, a suite of double-ended dildos. You put it on your registry when it's wedding time. (laughs) My boyfriend typically lasts only three to five minutes in bed. How do I encourage him to make it last longer without hurting his feelings? (laughs) I I don't know where Nancy is right now. There you are. But this would qualify as one of those questions that we are constantly talking about. We only get these questions from women. Where And only usually women with male partners, not all of them straight, of course, not all of their male partners straight, but usually only women with male partners who are gaming out, how do I tell my partner something that he needs to know, uh, something that is important, uh, something that will improve our sex life or result in me not being in pain when we're having sex? How do I roll all this out while prioritizing his feelings over mine? and over my safety and over my pleasure. And my answer is, like, fucking tell him. And if he has a little, like, baby-ass meltdown about it, fucking break up with him. Unless... 
You can't. Uh, you know, you tell him that three to five minutes isn't enough for me. It doesn't get me off. So we're going to incorporate toys or you're going to fuck me till you come and then we're going to roll around some more until you can get hard again and then you're going to fuck me some more because I require more fucking than three to five minutes. And if you don't want to start having three and four ways with other dudes, we're going to find other workarounds. <laughs> For what might be for him like a hard physical limit that he doesn't have to be ashamed of. He's nothing to be ashamed of. If three to five minutes of fucking is all he can do and and good for him and the way his dick works, just like if you require a vibrator to come because that's the way your pussy works, that's the way your pussy works. If that's the way his dick works, that's the way his dick works. And after he comes, if he gets soft, how hard are his fingers? How hard is his forearm? How hard is his tongue? That there are other things that you can do and do before. Like you can come and come and come and come and then you can just throw the dick in when you're ready for three to five minutes more of this shit. (laughs) But you have to be willing to communicate with him about it. You have to just disinhibit in your communication with him about it and not worry about his precious ego. And I know women are socialized to defer to men. Women are socialized to uh, prioritize his feelings over, often we get so many calls, over their own physical comfort and safety. We have calls from women who are hurting. He likes to play with my ass and finger fucks me and he does it so hard and it hurts or he doesn't trim his fingernails. How do I ask him to cut his fingernails without making him feel bad about all the times he's already hurt me? That's just an indictment of our culture and the way we raise girls and the damage done by putting men first. So just fucking tell them five minutes ain't cutting it. Is any school in America teaching sex ed that includes discussions about pleasure? No. If not, how do we do this? Get on school boards? Is there a progressive ALEC where we can get pre-written proposals. You know, this is one of those cases where the right-wing haters want it more. I don't think we're ever going to really have decent, comprehensive, queer-inclusive, pleasure-inclusive, gender-smart sex ed in our schools, which is a shame because we fucking need it. On the other hand, it is job protection for me. (laughs) So maybe I have a bias or a conflict here and I can't really give good advice. The problem with leaving pleasure out of discussions uh, in sex ed and consent and so much else is that you will have young people come to partnered sex and it isn't pleasurable or, or it's physically painful and they don't think there's anything particularly wrong with that because pleasure wasn't discussed because they didn't think sex was supposed to feel good for them, particularly uh, for girls, for young women. And that's a big fucking problem. And when you think about it, you know, the sex ed we have, 99%, or the sex ed we have is basically reproductive biology. And a lot of lefties and progressives, the, the sex ed programs that you will see them praising, they'll say, oh, there's really good sex ed at this school. And then you look at it, you look at the program, and it's just reproductive biology. It's fallopian tubes and zygotes and spermatozoa. And any idiot can make a baby. Bristol Palin made two. (laughs) And Sarah Palin made five or four, depending on (laughs) who you believe. You can cover reproductive biology in about a minute and a half. 
the stuff that screws people up, the, stu- the, the, the stuff where people have problems and difficulty are around identity, are around orientation, are around consent, and are around pleasure. Those are the things that trip people up. And pleasure is 99.99% of the time the reason people are having sex. People have sex for pleasure primarily, almost exclusively. People have sex for babies rarely. Even Rick Santorum only has seven horrible children. Right? And he's an Opus Dei Catholic who thinks you only put a penis in a woman when you want to impregnate her. Practice on altar boys. I'm Catholic. I can, I can go there. <laughs> they are my people. The sex ed that we have, I, I always describe it as like a driver's ed course where they teach you about the internal combustion engine and how it works, but they don't teach you about red hexagons or octagons, and they don't teach you about steering or brakes or turn signals or right-of-way. And then they hand you keys to a car after you've had this class in the internal combustion engine, and you get in that car and you kill someone because you don't fucking know how to drive. And the sex ed that we have is like that. We teach you how the reproductive internal combustion engine works, and we don't teach you how to steer. We don't teach you about consent. We don't teach you how to, about pleasure. We don't teach you how to drive And then you're handed the keys to your adult sex life and you kill someone because you don't fucking know how to drive despite the sex education or driver's education that you've had. But I don't know how we get pleasure into the curricula when it comes to sex education because the thing that trips people up and really can traumatize people is how do you talk someone into fucking you? That's really the tricky stuff. That's the scary stuff. How do I talk somebody into fucking me? How do I get consent? How do I give consent? And then how do I give pleasure? And in this country, Canada got the French, Australia got the convicts, we got the Puritans. In this country, I don't think we're ever going to be able to teach pleasure because we don't regard pleasure as a legitimate end to anything, much least of all to sex. So it's a big problem, but it keeps me in business. My husband and I are trying to have a kid and it's taking longer than we thought it would. How can we keep things exciting when fertility app makes things seem unsexily regimented? You're on your own. I don't know. I don't know. I've never tried to come in somebody for uh, that reason. Um, I think that's one of those cases where you just acknowledge that this is shitty and not that hot, and there's really no way to make this shitty or hot, so we're just going to power through the fertility app stage of our sexual connection and uh, try to bust that nut. And sometimes it's a relief to say to someone, the sex does not have to be good right now. That we can just get it hard, get it off, that there's... A utilitarian thing going on here right now that isn't about giving pleasure. It's not about mind-blowing sex. It's not about anything. It's just about put your cum near my ovaries. And it doesn't have to be great. And that's the kind of sex that you will be having also after you have a baby. <laughs> not the get me pregnant sex, but the let's get off. Let's not lose our sexual connection. We don't have the time or the energy or the focus or the consciousness, you know, the, the, the awake that we need to really, like, fuck like we did before we had kids. So let's just, like, not lose the thread. Let's just every once in a while masturbate together, milk each other, just, like, 
do the job, tag that base. That's the kind of sex you're going to have after you have a baby, so you might as well get used to it now. (laughs) Other advice for new parents. Advice from my mother, uh, Judy. Uh, She came to Seattle after Terry and I had a baby, and Terry instantly got his pre-baby body back, which I really appreciated. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know, right? Um, And my mother came to town, and she basically, we were like new parents, this brand new infant. We didn't think we could be away from him. And she took the baby from us and pushed us out the door and said, take advantage. And that was her advice to new parents. Take advantage. Go to dinner. Go see a movie. And mom's POV and her advice to us was basically the only time you remember why you liked each other well enough to want to have a kid together in the first place is when you're away from your fucking kid. (laughs) Together. And it was really important for us to take that time. And when we entered Parentlandia, we met so many people in the first, like, few years, first five, six years, we would meet other parents who would brag about the fact that they hadn't been to dinner since the baby or babies came. They hadn't been to a movie. They hadn't been to a play. They certainly hadn't had a weekend away together because they were just such devoted, loving, caring parents. So that's who they were now. They were parents now. And everything they were doing before they became parents, like having fun or having a drink or having dinner or an adult conversation or 10 fucking minutes without being covered in vomit, that was so meaningless because now they're doing what's really important. All those motherfuckers who bragged about that shit got divorced. And if you really love your kid, once, you, once he comes at the exact right moment and you get pregnant and you have that kid, if you really love your kid or kids, get the fuck away from your kids every once in a while and have a date, have dinner, go away for a weekend, fuck each other. It's in your, that's a loving thing you do for your kid. You get the fuck away from your kid. Sometimes that's the most loving thing you can do for your kid. And then one day your kid will repay that favor to you. Anal sex, either topping or bottoming, isn't that pleasurable for me. How do I learn to enjoy bottoming more, and how do I learn to keep an erection longer so I can top my husband who loves to get fucked? I think we're meeting the second half of the, co- the guy from earlier. You know, if it's not for you and you've given it the old college try, uh, you may have to accept that this isn't something that you're ever really going to enjoy that much or be very good at and find other workarounds. That said, there's a lot of people, I don't know how old you are or how long you've been at this butt fuckery thing, but a lot of people come to butt sex with shame. A lot of gay men particularly come to butt sex with shame. Um, And, you know, it's dirty and filthy and there's poo and there isn't really. That's why Santorum is the frothy mix of lube and fecal matter that is sometimes the byproduct of anal sex. Because if you're doing anal sex right, there is no Santorum. It's only a sometimes thing. That's why Santorum is such a great redefinition. Because when Santorum shows up, it kind of ruins the anal sex. And that's Santorum uppercase or lowercase. If Rick Santorum walked in, it would kind of ruin it. (laughs) Or if the dude rolled over and it was Rick Santorum, that would totally ruin it. And if Santorum the substance shows up, it totally ruins it. It's fun talking to people who've never had anal sex who are a little phobic about it, about butt sex, because they, they think they have it in their heads that somebody's rear end is like a chocolate frozen yogurt dispenser <laughs> in the back of an Arby's in Plano, Texas in August during a brownout that is just always kind of drooling. 
and it's just not true. If you get a lot of fiber and you have regular BMs and you have a good sense of when you're empty, you don't even need to douche. You're good to go. But people have these hang-ups that, like, just inside the sphincter, there's just this horror show. (laughs) It looks like Dexter's living room, but shit, after he murdered somebody, right? And it ain't true. So maybe you need to think more about anal. You need to experiment alone with anal. And that's often uh, something I prescribe to people that that, that has worked. And I've gotten a lot of feedback from this over the years. That's really worked for people who had the hang-up, couldn't get hard, really couldn't, like, relax, particularly when they were doing it with a partner. And my advice would be to try it alone. Get a butt plug. Butt plugs are the wonder plug. The wonder drug plug. Butt plugs are really the training wheels for anal for a lot of people. Uh, Particularly like straight guys who are interested in anal play because it doesn't look like a dick. It looks like a lava lamp that disappears in your ass. (laughs) And you can set it and forget it. And then when you have your orgasm and your sphincters are clenching, the the butt plug does not start fucking you. It doesn't turn into John Holmes then. But... (laughs) Just a 40-year-old pop culture porn reference. Thank you for getting it. The butt plug, when your sphincters start to squeeze, just very gently begins to press against... I won't even say move, because that freaks some straight guys out. Just presses against your prostate in this way that is really amazing. But for somebody who's into anal or wants to experiment with it without the pressure of disappointing a partner, get a butt plug, put it in, watch some porn, jack the fuck off, and begin to associate anal pleasure, anal stimulation, or anal penetration with pleasure, with your own pleasure, with your own orgasm. And that can help bridge the gap between shame and hang-ups and, uh, and a block when it comes to anal, and the ability to explore anal with a partner with boners and fun and joyfully. All that said, sometimes when people say, when I get fucked, I'm not hard, they're comparing themselves to what they see in porn, where usually, invariably, the guy getting fucked is hard. And there are lots of people who enjoy anal, but they don't get hard during anal. That they just sort of relax. And in the relaxing, which makes it possible to have anal, they just kind of let let go of their own boners and they enjoy their partner's pleasure. And then they jack off when it's all over or whatever else they want to do. And maybe you're one of those guys. So stop looking at your soft dick during anal and think, I'm failing anal. Maybe that's how you do anal. That you do it with and for your partner And it's not about your orgasm or your boner. So long as you're not bleeding, weeping, or crying, or in pain, like, relax and enjoy. Enjoy his enjoyment of your gaping maw. (laughs) Three years ago, my partner and I started dating, and I noticed a scar on her upper leg. When I... I, Is your partner here? No? Good. Because I don't want to read the rest of this question if your partner's here. So once again, is your partner here? Three years ago, that person threw their voice. They're actually sitting way back there. Three years ago, my partner and I started dating, and I noticed a scar on her upper leg. When I inquired about it, she started to cry. I apologized for bringing it up, and she said she didn't need to talk about it. I apologized for bringing it up, said she didn't need to talk about it if she didn't want to, and filed it away in the back of my mind. Three years later, on Valentine's Day, we didn't fuck first. I was encouraged enough to bring it back up. She started crying again and said she would tell me tomorrow. Tomorrow comes and it doesn't happen, and she cries again. I love her and want to respect her space, but her inability to talk about it makes me question our relationship. Stop fucking asking her about it. She knows you want to know. She's filed that away too. And at some point she may feel safe telling you about it, but clearly she doesn't feel safe telling you about it right now. And 
we are, even in relationships, autonomous individuals entitled to some zone of privacy and entitled to keep some things, even some experiences, to ourselves. And it's not necessarily an indictment of the relationship, and it's not necessarily about you or about how good a partner you are or bad a partner you are or whether you're... It's not a referendum on your lovingness, your fitness, their affection for you, anything. It's just something that they don't want to talk about. And you have to respect that. At a certain point, you have to say, clearly... To yourself, not to her. Clearly, whatever that's about is really dark and traumatizing and hard for her to talk about. I may never know what all that is about. All you need to know is it's painful and it's somewhere she isn't comfortable going. Don't drag her there knowing that. That said, you're... I'm, you're, I don't want to make it sound like your desire to know came from a bad place. I'm sure it came from a very loving place where you want to care for this person and know them wholly. But one of the things you learn when you're in super-duper long-term relationships, I'm in the third decade of one myself, is that you never know someone wholly. That that person is always going to be a bit of a mystery to you. That you can't, you don't meld, you don't merge. Uh, and they are autonomous individuals entitled to zones of privacy and entitled to have places and spaces emotionally, sometimes socially, erotically, where you don't get to go. Why do hand jobs get a bad rap? <laughs> Between me and my partner, it's a bonding experience, something we both suffer through to show our dedication and love. <laughs> Maybe it gets a bad rap because you describe it as something you suffer through. I don't think hand jobs should get a bad rap. I think hand jobs are sex. It's one of the things I'm constantly telling straight people. Raise your hand if you're straight. Oh my gosh, welcome. We want the music box to be a safe space for you too. There's like a foot wide gap behind the stage and I'm going to fall to my death at a certain point. I'm just going to like, this is a little rundown I do when I do live shows in colleges usually for young straight people. What straight people should take from gay people besides brunch reservations sit-ups not not i'm not a fashion fag so i can't go there and joke about how you should take our fashion tips because i'm a bum but there's a few things that straight people should steal from gay people there's things you've already stolen you've just renamed them so much of the way straight young people particularly young people young adults live now are things elements that of gay culture that religious conservatives condemned 30 years ago uh, you just took them and gave them new names. We had tricks. You have hookups. We had fuck buddies. You call them friends with benefits. And you stole those things. There's one more thing that straight people have to steal, and it's, I, always, I call it the four magic words. What are you into? That question. And that question, when two guys are going to fuck, is always asked. When you get to consent, and it's a man and a woman, all too often... Consent is granted, hopefully verbally, and then all communication ceases because what's happening next is assumed. It's heterosexual sex. It's penis and vagina. That's where it's headed. Maybe there'll be a little oral and rolling around, but dick and pussy, that's where we're going because that's what heterosexual sex is. And we don't have that default assumption in fagland. Two guys say yes to sex, and it's the beginning of a whole other conversation. 
Because who's fucking who or whether anybody's getting fucked at all has to be discussed. It has to be negotiated. And so gay sex, and I learned this at a very early age, here in Chicago, not very far from this building. Gay sex... <laughs> well, actually, somewhat far. Argyle L-Stop, near the Argyle L-Stop. <laughs> gay sex begins with, what are you into? And it's so empowering, because at that moment, you can rule anything in and anything out. And it sometimes shocks straight people to hear that, to, or to learn that often what a gay guy hears when he asks, what are you into, from the other dude is not into anal. Maybe not at all. 25, 30% of gay men don't have anal sex ever or at all or hardly ever. And uh, a lot of gay guys don't want to have anal sex on the first date because they're good girls. <laughs> and so they'll say, like, not into anal, not so much into fucking. And then it becomes a negotiation around... Or, and, you know, it's a sexy negotiation around hand jobs or rolling around or fantasy play or oral sex, all these other things you can do. And hand jobs in that context, mutual masturbation, isn't some sad and tragic consolation prize. It's sex. And straight people will often say to me, you know, I wish I could have more sex. And I look at them and say, you could if you had a broader definition of sex. Because I've had straight friends say to me, I've asked them, you'd get laid last night? I saw you with that girl in the bar. And they're like, no, no, I didn't get laid. Just got a blowjob. As if a blowjob isn't sex, as if that's not getting laid. It's that sad and tragic consolation prize. And you would have more sex if you define more things as sex. And straight guys, and maybe I'm patronizing you. You guys are here. (laughs) So maybe you guys already know that. Maybe you already listened to the podcast. Straight guys will often confide in me that they're jealous because it's so much easier to get a guy into bed. So me as a gay guy, I can get laid a lot easier than they can because talking women into, particularly women you've just met, into sex is a lot more difficult. And there are a lot of reasons for that, starting with violence and sexual assault and rape, right? That the risks and dangers for women are so much more extreme. But there's a whole other reason. And I say this to straight guys all the time. And I love saying it at large public universities when I get paid by the state to say it. Uh, If, straight boys, if every time you said yes to sex, you got fucked in the ass, you would say yes less often. Because to be the penetrated one, to have the shit fucked out of you, literally, unfortunately, at times, is a higher sort of entry cost. The price of admission for that is greater for you. And dudes, you you know, you fuck somebody and then you roll over and the prolactin is released into your body and it puts you to sleep and you just roll over with your now stanky dick and drop off. Hopefully after making sure she came to or he came to, but the person you just fucked lays there with tingle hole, (laughs) awake, has to go to the bathroom once or twice, feels like the bladder's full, has got to go get rid of your spermies, Right? If you are, you know, bonded in that way and you are fluid bonded and you've tested and everything else. And you're asleep, but, you know, there's an extra hour, hour and a half for the person who got fucked often that gets bundled up with saying yes to getting fucked. So if it's 1130 and you both have to be up at 7 o'clock in the morning and you want to fuck, she has to, like, budget that extra hour for tingle hall (laughs) that you don't have to budget. So if every time she says yes, she gets fucked, she's going to say yes less often. If, she can, if you can say, what are you into tonight, if it's a regular partner, and she can say, I'm not into vaginal. Imagine, like, straight guys' heads would explode, right? 
this woman has already agreed to have sex with you, and then you have a what are you into conversation, and she says, like a gay dude might say, not into anal. She says, I'm not into vaginal. The straight dude would be like, what? <laughs> but that would be better for you straight guys in the end. You would get more hand jobs. You would get more oral sex. You would get to eat more pussy, right? You would get yes more often from the women you're trying to get into bed if you treated them like fags. <laughs> 32-year-old female in a committed poly relationship with two young children. How should I handle being honest about my family in the workplace? Poly folks, particularly poly straight folks, particularly poly straight folks with children, are in the place that I think a lot of gay couples and gay people used to be in 30, 40 years ago. There's a lot of stigma, judgment, shame, uh, discrimination against firing someone because their poly is legal. Um, Welcome to your civil rights battle. Good luck with it. Um, And I'm on your side right there with you. Uh, You know, what you say in the workplace has to be balanced against how risky you think it would be for you economically, professionally, to be out about being poly. I think you should be able to be out about being poly but not everyone is in a situation or a circumstance where they can, you know, shoulder the risks of being out about being poly. Uh, what is her name? The lesbian senator from Wisconsin, Tammy, Tammy Baldwin, gave this great speech uh, about 15 years ago, uh, I think when she was uh, a member of Congress, talking, you know, bucking up the troops. And we were really taking some body blows 10, 15 years ago in the LGBT civil rights movement as we are again now. And she was, in this wonderful speech she gave, she said, if you want to live in a world where you can put your partner's picture on your desk at work, put your partner's picture on your desk at work, and then you live in that world, right? And it's sort of importuning people to push past their inhibitions, to push their boundaries, to take risks. And maybe you're in that place now where you can live in a world where you can be out about being poly if you out yourself about being poly because then you live in that world. But you have to assess the risk for yourself professionally, for your family, your children, economically, before you take that step. Uh, but more and more people are, be, are out now about being poly. More and more straight people are out now about being open or monogamish. And that is going to change things for you. And you can benefit from the change that other people uh, are forging for you. Other people can be the tip of the spear and you can come in behind them and then come out when it's a little safer, or you can be the tip of the spear yourself. It's just a choice that you have to make. I met my boyfriend at a sex swinger party and found out later, to my surprise, that he is very monogamous and has some trust issues. How can I convince him I'm serious, won't cheat on him, but also that monogamy and commitment aren't always positively correlated? I think you should break up with him now. Where can I find sex-positive porn online? It's, I wish you had left online off the question, because the answer would be online. <laughs> it's basically where all the porn is. Some of it not so sex-positive, but a lot of it sex-positive. I would urge you to uh, read and follow Tristan Taramino, to follow feminist porn... Uh, Blogs. There's a feminist porn, basically Twitter community uh, that that ropes in a lot of uh, feminist porn uh, actors, performers, producers, Jizz Lee, other people, uh, Violet Blue. Plug yourself into that online world, and you will find your way to 
all sorts of ethically produced, locally sourced, small batch, (laughs) sex-positive pornography that you can feel good about watching, that you can feel good about consuming because you're creating more demand for more porn created uh, in these ethical ways. Uh, And you can support the careers and livelihoods of these people who are creating this kind of porn. Uh, So it's not hard to find. You just have to be so motivated, and you just have to get online. All right, we hope you enjoyed that selection from our recent live show in Chicago. We certainly enjoyed talking with Savage Lovecast fans at the Music Box Theater. Now coming up, some of your regular questions from the regular phone lines and my conversation with author and advice columnist Heather Haverlusky. Hi, Dan, and the Tech Savvy At-Risk Youth. I am a 27-year-old gay man, and... I have a partner of over a year and a half, and he's a wonderful human. He is, and we, I guess, both as a couple are dealing with his family. They're a very religious family raised in a, you know, waspy Protestant thing, and they did not react well to him coming out years ago, and they have not since reacted well to him announcing that he and I are together. We live together. It's, you know, on social media and they don't seem to be able to reconcile that. So they um, have since canceled his birthday dinner because he wanted to invite me. They have said that I'm not allowed at family functions, that he's still welcome to be a part of the family, but I am not. The other limiting factor to him just turning around and, you know, being upset with them to you know, just putting his foot down is that they're all very non-confrontational people. So I understand that the simple answer is to have him grab his cojones and just do it. I think it's very difficult for him to stand up to the people that have been kind of putting him down for the entirety of his life. So I was wondering if you just have some, either some resources or some advice on how I can help him support him and help him kind of really frame the issue with his family. I, I, don't like to bring it up to him just because I feel like I know it causes him pain, but there are things like holidays and the idea of getting engaged and married and kind of how his family's going to react to that, that I would like to start bringing up. So you've been dating this guy for 1.5 years, but he's only been out to his family for a year. No, he's been out to his family since he was, uh, for about 10 years, but we told them about, uh, Wait, really? He's been out for 10 years and they're still having this fucking meltdown? Yeah. Yeah, it <sighs> was originally it was, you know, we don't accept your lifestyle, you're going to hell, the choices that you make have eternal consequences, all of that. And then now that he's dating someone and now that there's kind of a face to it, being the first person that was mm-hmm. dating him long enough in order to bring home to his family, I guess that they just can't you know, reconcile that. Yeah. Well, you've been, how long have you been listening to the show? Um, actually only, uh, not too long. I was actually just listening to the 500th episode when you called, which is pretty cool. So not too long, but I figured that, you know, it came to me at the right time. So you haven't heard my, by now, uh, road advice that a lot of listeners can probably chant along with me, which is your boyfriend has to make a shift. He has to shift gears. He has to, move from fearing his family's rejection to making his family fear his rejection. 
which means that he has to use the only leverage he has over mom and dad as an adult child, which is his presence in their lives. And if they've been saying shitty things to him for a decade about being gay and he has dutifully gone home for Christmases and dutifully gone out with them for his birthday dinners, that needs to stop. He needs to tell mom and dad that he's not going to see them anymore, have anything to do with them anymore if they can't move past this bigotry bullshit, period, the end. And he has to be willing to play that card. And, you know, I was listening to your call going, what kind of 27-year-old goes out with his parents for his birthday dinner? Like he's 10. He needs to get into a different place with his mom and dad. He needs to have an adult-child relationship with them and not a child-child relationship with them. So I I 100% agree. And as a, you know, very forceful, outgoing person from a very loud, forceful, outgoing family, I would be doing the exact same thing. The There's a couple of complications. One is that his mother passed away a couple of years ago at a very young age. And so the family, that was obviously a huge blow. So they're pretty close. Um, we live really close to his family. Mine is across the country. But yeah. uh, um, you, I'm sorry. Even so, you don't get a pass on shitty family because a parent died. That's what parents do. And I say that as a parent, one day I will be dead. One day all of us will be dead. And it's a tragedy and it's sad, but it doesn't then give his the rest of his family license to continue being shitty to him forever. Nor is it reason for him to put up with their shit forever because there was a tragedy. Life is tragedy interspersed with right. hopefully some joy and pleasure, but it all ends in a funeral home at some point for somebody, including you, including him, including dad, including siblings. So they can't press that button forever and he shouldn't be cowed by that. Right. And, and I a hundred percent agree. And the thing is, is he's such a good person. He doesn't deserve to be treated like that. And, you know, he's been making a lot of strides and very, you know, anytime that anything's brought up to him, he seems to be, um, he's made, you know, taken steps and made progress. But as we come to, you know, more serious steps in our relationship, what are, you know, some pieces of advice or anything that I can do, anything I can go to, to, you know, be supportive of that? Well, you, you can be supportive, but you're going to have to be a little bit of the backbone. And maybe 1.5 okay. years is too soon to be the backbone, like not even 24 months into this relationship. And if you, you know, force him to choose between the family, even though they've been abusive to him emotionally, really, all his life or all his adult life. And you, he may choose them because they're safe and familiar and they've always been there and you're new still. And you may not always be there because romantic partners may not always be there. So you have to convince him this is about transforming his relationship with his family. Whether you're there or not, it's not about you and it's not about the two of you. It's about him. And whether he wants it to go on like this for the rest of his fucking life. And he shouldn't and he doesn't. Right. And so he needs to he needs to see, and maybe you should let him listen to this, and maybe he will see, that what his family is doing is they're having a tantrum in order to control him. That if they throw a fit and they don't take him out for his birthday dinner and they don't let him come home for Christmas, maybe he will then cut you out of his life or edit his life when he's around them and not marry you if that's what he wants to do because then his family will be in this awkward position of coming or not coming to the wedding. And so maybe he'll behave differently if they just throw a big enough fit. And what he needs to convince them of is he's not going to behave any differently no matter how big a fit they throw. That's right. That's what we do with toddlers. Toddlers have tantrums and if they work, they never stop. And the tantrums get bigger and louder and come more often. Once toddlers see that a tantrum is a waste of energy and effort – 
they move on to different tactics, hopefully more rational ones, as they mature. His family right now, it sounds like they've been having a tantrum for a decade, and it's been working. So they've had no incentive to stop or change. And he is the one in charge, just like a parent with a toddler is in charge of like getting that to stop or change. He's in charge of getting that to stop or change. And the only way to do that is for him to say to his family, you can have your fit. I'm going to suck this man's cock. You can have your fit. I'm going to marry this dude if that's what I want to do. And then you'll look like terrible people if you don't come to the wedding. Because you know what? If you don't come to the wedding, you are terrible people. You just be exposed as terrible people. And he has to stand firm. Yeah. And again, and, and, and I think what you say to him is, you're not doing this for me. Don't make this like it's me or them. Because a lot of people who have abusive families will choose family which is a known, even if it's a shitty known, it's a known known. They've always been there. They'll always be there, even if they're awful. A romantic partner might not always be there. So what you say to him is, whether I'm always there or not, and I would like to be, and maybe we're moving in that direction, you don't want it to always be like this. Whether you're alone in the future or you're with somebody else in the future or we're together in the future, you don't want it to be like this forever. And it may reach a point where he has to cut him out of his life for years for them to see that they can have him by loving and accepting him, or they can lose him by doing what they're doing. Right. I have to make sure that it's not, that I'm not doing the exact same thing to him that they are and saying, you know, exactly. it's either me or them. They're exactly. saying it's either us or him. Right. You don't say that. You know. So don't be the like jealous. If he wants to have like some sort of lunch with his dad or his siblings, even while they're being shitty, don't be like, I can't believe you would see those people. Like say, go see those people. Maintain that contact, but don't let them have a tantrum. Don't let them control you. Separate them from your decision about us or our future together. And they can be a part of our okay. future if we have a future or not. That's their choice. But don't incentivize the, you know, the, the never-ending continuation of all of these tantrums because they're trying to control you. And what you have to be is the person who's not trying to control him, the person who's empowering him. Right. So don't say we're moving towards marriage. So you have to have a showdown with your family. You say you <laughs> right. have to have a showdown with your family. Okay. That's one thing that's in your future or maybe in your right now. And maybe we're going to get married. That's something else. That's about us. Not about them. Right. I need to be a cheerleader instead of. And you need to disentangle those things. And you need to have this not be about your ego. Do you want to be loved by these people? Right. Do you want to be like at their house for Christmas? I wouldn't want to be. No, I mean, it would be nice to just be able to, but that isn't, that's not my choice to make. Well, no, have you gone to your boyfriend and said, I have to be able to, you know, I want your family to have me at Christmas? No, not at all. Okay, because you should go to him and say, let's have our own Christmas. Let's build our own traditions. Let's make our own family. Yeah, and thankfully, and thankfully, my family is extremely progressive and supportive. They love him. They love us together. They, he's, you know, invited to every holiday, every Good gathering with my family. It's, you know, logistically difficult, but, you know, we can make it work. Make it work. Bring him. Let him see how it could be. Let him see how it should be. And hopefully sometime with your family will help him to understand or to accept that he shouldn't have to put up with the crap that is shoveled his way by his shitty family of origin. Quoting Armistead Maupin. People quote me about this online all the time, thinking I said this and I didn't. So I'm going to roll this out by saying Armistead Maupin, Armistead Maupin, Tales of the City. He said this. There's your biological family and there's your logical family. In the best cases, there's overlap between your logical and biological family. Sometimes no. 
Right. And this may be a case where his logical family is you and your extended family. And if he binds with your extended family, then you need to be sure to let your extended family know that whatever happens with your relationship, if they really take him in, that he's to stay in. Even if you guys break up, that you don't want, if you guys should ever break up, for them to feel like they have to cast him out or cut him off. And you're going to be the grown-up in that situation because if he really binds with your family, emotionally, socially, if they become his family, they will stay his family even if you two should break up at some point. Offer him that. Awesome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And tell your boyfriend a lot of people have been there with their families, and this works. Walk away. If you keep running at them while they're being shitty, there's no reason for them to turn off the shit spigot. If you walk away and right. you refuse to like sit under the shit spigot for them to dump it all over you, they're like, oh, that's not working anymore. Maybe we'll try a different tactic, like getting the fuck over it. So continue being supportive, continue framing it as, you know, he needs to keep making his progress and that I'll be here to support him no matter what. So, all right. Awesome. Thank you. You're welcome. Good luck, man. Hey, Dan. Gay dude in New York City here. Last night, I was stumbling through the internet, as one does, and found a video of a guy jerking off. And what made me watch it is because I went to college with him. He's a good friend of mine. It's her husband. Now, it's on a gay site. It has about 5,000 views or so. It's clearly an amateur video. Clearly him sitting in front of a computer, communicating someone, to someone through the computer, just putting on the show. I have no idea whether or not he's even aware that this is up there. If he's given his consent, then by all means, let him do his thing. It, or if it was something that was mostly recorded and thrown up on the internet because they knew gay dudes like it. I'm not sure. Do I let him know that I'm aware of this? Do I say, hey, just so you know, this exists in the world? Because I don't think anyone can take it down, at least that I know of, except for like the site itself. Or if he did it intentionally, then like I want to give him a high five. So what do I do? Now, I know, had this been a friend of mine who was a girl, I would like ring the alarm and get angry and try to do anything I could to take it down. But it's a video and he's hot, so that gay paradox comes in where it's like, well, am I doing a disservice to the community if I take it down? Once that video is out there in the wild, whether he released it himself or someone surreptitiously and maliciously recorded him without his knowledge or consent and put it up there, there's no way to pull it back. So he may be sitting home alone, completely unaware that this video is out there and unperturbed and undisturbed by it. So you coming and telling him, hey, just so you know, I just thought you should know is going to upset him and to what end? He's not going to then be able to scrub the video from the internet and you've tormented him. And then he's going to wring his hands for the rest of his life worrying about what's going to happen when or if ever this video should be seen by someone that he knows or someone who would judge him or fire him or divorce him if they saw it. So you're taking someone who right now is whistling as he walks down the street and turning him into a cringing, fearful mess, potentially for years and years and for no purpose because nothing can be done about it. Leave it alone and comfort yourself with the thought that maybe he has a little bit of an exhibitionistic streak and he put it up. 
And so he's only too delighted that it's out there in the world. I would run with the latter assumption if only because the former assumption that he doesn't know about it, you make that assumption, what do you do with that? There's nothing you can do about it. There's nothing can be done about it. Let it lay and take comfort in the thought that this J.O. video will be buried in time like a layer of sediment under tons and tons and tons of other J.O. videos that are being uploaded onto the video on a daily basis. And hopefully all of those other J.O. videos will obscure his in time and it will be lost and forgotten one day. We're going to take a quick break from the calls to talk with another advice columnist. Heather Haverleski is the author, How to Be a Person in the World. She also writes the Ask Polly column for New York Magazine's The Cut. Hey, Heather, how are you? I'm great. How are you, Dan? I'm really good. Congratulations on the new book, which is subtitled Ask Polly's Guide to the Paradoxes of Modern Life. And it's terrific, and everyone should read it. But before we get to the book, just a quick question I'd like to ask this of anybody who's in this field. How did you get into the advice racket yourself? Um, well, I was uh, – I, I was – I started my career as a as a writing cartoons, and when the dot com bubble popped, I had no job, and I was someone who could not draw because I worked with an illustrator when I wrote cartoons. So I was a writer who could I was a cartoonist who couldn't draw. <laughs> um, so I basically was unemployable. Um, so naturally, I started a blog. Um, this was in two thousand one, and the most I didn't want to start like a journal uh, or a diary online. I wanted it to be a little more structured than that. So I made up an advice letter and answered it. Uh, it was called the rabbit blog. Um, and so I gave advice on my blog for about 11 years. Uh, a lot of it was very bad advice. A lot of it was aggressive, um, really just looking for a joke um, kind of advice. Uh, but then when I left my job as Salon's TV critic and I wanted to do something new and I wanted to try out a new kind of column, I knew I wanted to write some kind of a column. Um, I pitched an advice column to the all, uh, small, eccentric, interesting website, very smart website. Um, and they said, yes. So that was in 2012. So I've only been doing this for four years. Um, but that's, that's how it all started. It was just self, uh, reinvention over and over again. Desperation also. I think those years that you were giving bad, aggressive, jokey advice would have to count toward your years as an advice columnist because bad, aggressive, jokey advice is the only kind of advice I've ever given, and I count all the years (laughs) I've been doing it. Well, you know, you were an inspiration to me when I was living in San Francisco in in 92, 93. I used to read your column, and I read uh, Cynthia Heimel and your column, and uh, I read a lot of John Updike at that time. So I think those are like my three uh, early influences, um, if that makes any remote sense at all. I like to know that I've inspired the competition. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Sadly, that's what comes with doing something really well. It is. You spawn a whole army of imitators eventually. As you must now uh, have inspired because Ask Polly is really popular. It's in a great magazine. Um, Now you have the book coming out. Do you get letters like I sometimes get? Like, I want your job. How do I get your job? And you look at those letters like, I'm not going to help you out. Like, you go figure it out. (laughs) I'm I'm not going to like, here's how you steal my job from me. Do you get those questions? Um, yes, I do. A lot of people, uh, uh, no, I wouldn't say a lot of people, but I occasionally get the letter that says, 
I want to do exactly what you're doing, exactly the way you're doing it. You know, to which I say, well, uh, you know, watch and learn. I I don't know what else to say. Um, Yeah, I'm a little bit hesitant to like uh, create a roadmap to um, stealing my job. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I read uh, I read Dear Sugar. She was the other advice columnist that I read, you know, in um, I think she was writing that column for the Rumpus in 2010, maybe 2011. That would be Cheryl Strayed, Dear Sugar, which is terrific. Cheryl Strayed, yes. Cheryl Strayed is amazing, and and uh, and so I'm an imitator of her. I'm I'm not against imitation or or flattery, or or, you know, or um, or kind of following someone else's lead to a new kind of creative uh, mode of self-expression. I I kind of think that. Yeah, we're not against that. No, I'm, I'm always he, cited as my inspiration and antecedents, Dear Abby, Ann Landers, and Xavier Hollander, who wrote the Ask the Madam column in Penthouse Magazine in the 60s and 70s. Those were the ones I oh, that inspired uh-huh. me. You know, the, the Jewish twins from Iowa and the hooker from Amsterdam. Those were my inspirations. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know what? Here, the, the real lesson here is draw from a wide range of influences and create your own twisted, crazy thing out of those influences. So tell me about the book. Well, the book is uh, about three-fourths uh, brand-new, unpublished um, columns, letters and answers. Um, there's a, it includes a wide range of questions from um, give me one good reason why I shouldn't cheat on my wife discreetly um, to sort of the more existential things like how do I stop feeling sad about the death of my father? Um, so it, it sort of starts out a little bit lighter and then kind of gets heavier as the book goes on. Um, I, my replies are very all over the map. Um, I tend to dive into the center of whatever I think is a blind spot in the writer, the letter writer's, um, uh, perspective or worldview. If I can find that, um, sometimes people have things that they, you know, every letter writer has some evident guiding, um, delusion or another. I mean, I think we all do. I'm sure that many, many delusions are, are in evidence in my responses. Um, but, but generally speaking, I try to find a place where a person can shift, not only, not only make a concrete change in their life, but also shift their overall perspective on the world in a way that might kind of incite a big change in their, in their life. Okay. But getting about to brass tacks, what is the reason you shouldn't cheat on your wife discreetly? That question stumps me all the time. Well, um, Did you give I the think reason? it's, I think it's pretty arrogant to believe that your wife will never find out. And, you know, to, to set up a situation where, um, you don't, uh, I, the difference between having an open marriage and lying to someone is just night and day that, you know, in fact, this, this guy who wrote into me said, uh, lots of gay men have open marriages. They're perfectly happy. Uh, and to, to which I say, yes, open marriages, as in everyone understands what's happening. The rules and, and principles of the situation are just, carefully laid out. Not just perfectly happy, but also perfectly honest with each other. Yeah, perfectly. I mean, honesty is at the center of a good marriage. It, you know, that's a cliche for a reason. It's, um, it's, not, it, it, it's not just the cheating. The cheating itself is sort of just a tiny, um, the, you know, the sex act that happens behind your back 
that's just a tiny something that happened. I don't even think that as an adult, that many people are that wound up about the act itself so much as uh, my partner in life decided that he could make a decision outside of, you know, my, that would directly impact my emotional state and directly impact my sense of being cared for and respected Mm -hmm. and supported in my life, um, that he could just make this independent decision and lie to me about it. Um, I think the lying is at the center of the problem. Um, they don't call it cheating for, uh, you know, the, the word is cheating for a reason. But if the lying was at the heart of the problem, then why don't people get as upset when people lie to them about other shit? Um, I, I, I do. The lying uh, and the sex together seems to be the toxic combination that explodes a lot of marriages. People lie to each other about where they were. People lie to each other about their friends. People lie to each other about their spending. People lie to each other about their diets or whether they got to the gym today. People lie to each other. Like, I, I think a good relationship, a lasting one, is built on a solid foundation of constant lying and editing. Because, uh, uh, you know, in my opinion, a relationship is a myth two people create together. And a little too much honesty makes the myth disappear. You know, there are no centaurs. I and there is completely no 100% Dan, I could not disagree with you more. <laughs> I could not disagree with you more i could not um to me i think you could if you tried maybe a little more (laughs) okay i disagree with you even more than i just did um (laughs) i i i really think that a relationship for me is defined by honesty it's about being completely 100 percent. the thing is when you but get people, into the wait, habit, wait, wait, wait. people say that, and I just don't think people mean it. There's nothing that you, there are no truths you want your partner to protect you from. Like, oh, honey, just so you know, my best friend thinks you're an asshole and I should leave you. Just to be perfectly honest about what my friends are telling you. Well, uh, I, I don't think a relationship can survive a deposition style marriage. You know, it's unfortunate for me that you're such a a skilled lawyer and orator about (laughs) this particular issue. Um, No, I don't. You know, being totally honest doesn't mean tell me what all your fucking friends think about me. I Mm -hmm. mean, you know, being totally honest means, um, you know, you're spending money we don't have and lying to me about it to cover it up. You're doing things that affect our partnership and lying to keep the peace. Mm-hmm. When you start to lie about small things, it's very, very, very easy to lie about bigger things. What I mean, about, what about I will, I will submit that it's, I'm, I will submit that it's possible you. that you have a different definition of what a good relationship even is than I do. And that's, I mean, you know, to each his own. I'm not going to say this is, you know, everyone should have exactly the same kind of relationship under all circumstances. I'm just telling you that in my experience, um, if you treat your partner like someone who needs to be handled and lied to, like someone who needs to be, sh- you know, shielded from the truth, like you need to, there must be a veil of mystery in order to con- continue to love the other person. I mean, that's sort of the opposite of, of my approach. My approach is like, we see each other clearly, flaws and all, and we love all of the flaws you know, maybe not as much as our better qualities, but when someone loves your flaws and is, and is compassionate towards you about who you really are, that's a really great feeling. And it allows you to not only have more compassion towards yourself, but also to have more compassion to everyone outside of you out in the world who are unlike you in many ways. Okay. Hypothetical before we let you go. <laughs> so <laughs> somebody cheats, regrets it deeply. It 
wakes them up, opens their eyes, never ever going to do that again. Are is it okay for them to not disclose, to lie for the rest of their lives about having been faithful all their lives? They were monogamous, successfully monogamous, except that one time. Is that something that would like not disclosing? Would that be lying? Protecting your partner from that information, particularly in a situation where that is never going to happen again, and perhaps never did happen again. Is that um, you know, te- permissible, that deception? Technically, technically, yes, that's a lie. But I will say that um, once I, this is not a path, this isn't like this is what I'm planning. I'll just do this once. Like if we're talking about it already happened and now you're 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 committed to. I, yes, I think that there are circumstances where, you know, you're going to throw the other person's life into turmoil Mm -hmm. if you tell them the truth about this thing. And I agree with you. You've written about this before. Tell sometimes you're telling someone just to get it off your back and and then you're putting it on their back. Um, I, I agree with that. I think that once you've done it, you have to, you know, you have to handle the after effects. And sometimes it's true that you have, so let's say you have three little kids at home you know that this person's entire life would be crushed if they found out about this one discreet mistake. Um, yeah, I think you keep that to yourself. If you're going re- to wreck their whole emotional boat, um, potentially, yes, you keep it to yourself. Every situation is different. There are situations where the marriage will grow stronger if you tell the other person. But if you're just kind of trying to get it off your back because it's haunting you, uh, meh, That's you know, the, you, might, you might fuck your marriage over. Yeah. Sneak into a Catholic church, pretend you're Catholic, confess to a priest, and then shut your phone down. <laughs> you're a pragmatist, Dan. You are a real pragmatist. <laughs> I want relationships to last, and sometimes that requires a little editing and a little shutting the fuck up and a little not being completely honest at all times. <laughs> Heather Haverleski, she is the author of the Ask Polly advice column in New York Magazine's The Cut and the new book, which is terrific, How to Be a Person in the World, Ask Polly's Guide to the Paradoxes of Modern Life. Heather, thank you so much. Please come back on the show. We do a little segment every once in a while called Second Opinion. We did it today where we have advice columnists come on and we take a couple of questions together. It's really fun chatting with you. I hope you'll come back and do that with me. I would love to do that. I like to argue with you a lot, Dan. <laughs> it's fun. <laughs> Thanks so much. Hi, Dan. I'm a just turned 21, heterosexual cis woman, and I'm just dying over here. I've been in a two-year relationship with the most amazing guy and I love him so much but I I cheated on him and I'm really I'm, I, I, I'm just turned 21 and I went out with some friends I drank too much I went home with somebody who I know but and I just I'm, I'm, I'm dying I don't know I feel so horrible but my partner he He's been cheated on previously, and I know if I tell him, things between us will end. And I don't, I don't know. I can't, I can't lose him. I'm very scared, and I have a lot of anxiety. And I don't know if it's just that, that I just feel guilt or regret. I mean, I, I feel all of those things. I just don't know if I can, if I should tell him if it's worth if it's just for me trying to get it off my shoulders, but then it's going to ruin everything. How ironic. And this wasn't intentional that we should get, take your call right after speaking with Heather, who brought up that very image that this is weighing on your shoulders. And do you want to 
place it on his shoulders. It depends. You know, if you tell him the relationship's going to be over, you're 21 years old, you've been with him since you were 18 or 19 years old, the chances that this is the relationship you're going to be in for the rest of your life are probably pretty slim. Ask yourself, how many people do you know who are with the people at 40 or 35 or 30 or 28 that they were with when they were 18 or 19? Very, very few. So it might end a relationship that was probably going to end at some point in the near future anyway. But you don't right now want this to end. So you have to weigh... The consequences of telling you, first of all, set aside the burdening, unburdening issue like this is weighing on you and telling him isn't going to make it weigh any less. It's just going to weigh on your relationship and perhaps end it. What you have to assess in a case like this, what you have to ask yourself, really two things. Are you ever going to do this again? Did you learn your lesson? Is this something that you regret and you're so scalded by this experience that you're never going to jump in that hot spring again, never going to touch that stove again? To learn that lesson at your age is valuable and common. There are a lot of people who are in 20, 30-year committed relationships, 10-year committed relationships, where there was an indiscretion like this early on that was never disclosed. And now, thank God it was never disclosed because it might have ended the relationship that obviously had legs and was going to last. So sometimes you don't disclose. Sometimes shit happens at the relatively early in a relationship before a formal commitment is made, before you marry, before you move in with each other, whatever it is. That is regrettable and regretted and best stuffed down the memory hole. And this may be a case of that. Better to protect him from this information, like I was saying to Heather a minute ago, better to eat it. And you know, if you could give him truth serum or hypnotize him and ask him, in, in a way where he's never going to remember being the question put to him, would you want me to tell you this? He might tell you no, that he would rather not know, rather not be told if it was going to make it impossible for him to stay with you. But you have to weigh all that against the odds of him finding out on his own. Who were you with that night? Who knows that this happened? Are these people who know friends of his too? Are any of them malicious shitbags who you've seen if they had a falling out with a friend, lash out and expose their misdeeds to others. Are you at risk of being found out if you don't disclose? In a case where you're at risk of being found out if you don't disclose, it's best to get in front of it. Better he should hear it from you than hear it from his best friend who was with you that night, who saw you leave with the guy, right? Better get out in front of it in that case. But if it's something that, but for your disclosure, but for your shifting the burden from your shoulders and onto his shoulders, he will never find out. And it's something that will never happen again. It might be in his best interest, not just yours, but in his best interest and the best interest of this relationship, which is something that the two of you are together and is greater than the sum of its parts. Better for you to shut your mouth, to keep it to yourself, to stuff it down the memory hole, to feel bad about it. And then weaponize that bad feeling, not against yourself, not with shame and self-recrimination. Weaponize it against this sort of thing ever happening again in the future. If you're ever tempted again, just remember, revisit emotionally. Remember how terrible this feeling was, this position that you put yourself in, how terrible the guilt was. And then look at the guy who's flirting with you in the bar and say, it's not worth it. His dick ain't worth those bad feelings. And I'm not going to do that again. I'm not going to put myself in this position again. I lucked out last time, five years ago or 10 years ago or 20 years ago, whenever it was. And my boyfriend, partner, husband, whatever, never found out. And thank God. And I'm just not going to push all those chips into the middle of the table again and roll the goddamn dice another time. 
Hi, Dan. Regarding episode 513, for the guy whose coworkers are racist, homophobic, sexist douchebags, I have one thing to say. Document everything. I work in equal employment opportunity and civil rights, and the most important thing I can urge you to do is to make a record of what happens when and who says what. Not so much for the asshole coworkers, but for when you go to management. The EEOC is also going to need it, so start writing everything down now. I myself ran into the situation where a coworker was sexually harassing me and others, and though I went to HR about it multiple times, nothing got done. Finally, I wrote everything down that I could remember, things he'd done and said when I'd reported them to HR and anything else relevant. I made an appointment to see our company's CEO, and I plopped that document down on his desk. That afternoon, the harasser was fired, and an outside investigator was called in. Oh, and my employer also sent me a gift basket thanking me for reporting what had happened. This is a response from episode 513 for the woman dealing with the Dom who wants to out her. When you're dealing with someone who's that big of an asshole, you don't fucking out people on set life ever for any reason. People like that should be avoided at all costs. So just do not report him. Just go ahead and block him. There's a button in the upper right corner. Use that. And anyone else who wants to bully you online, go ahead and create new profiles on, on uh, FetLife and also on your campsite. Just create a fresh new start. Also, go to, go to munches with the expectations to make friends, not, not uh, play partners. So that way you could actually have a support system that'll listen to you and support you through these troubling times. Sorry that you're going through this. Hope it gets better and have a good one. Hi, I'm calling to leave a comment about episode 513 about the woman who was considering not inviting uh, Trump supporters to her wedding. I got to say, about 12 years ago when I got married, my parents uh, at that point had not had a lot of contact with actual gay men or gay women. We had a couple gay couples at our wedding, and that was the biggest exposure that they've ever had to on a one-on-one -on -one level to people who are out. And it was a transformative uh, moment for them. I could tell at the time that it was a big deal that they actually spoke to them on a human level and, and it changed. It, it was a little pebble that helped change the way they think about things. And many years later, they told me that that was a, a, a that was indeed the case. It was a transformative moment. Flash forward to today, they are still pretty right wing Republican Fox News watchers. But they told me there's no way in hell that they're going to vote for Donald Trump and they're going to be voting for Hillary Clinton. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a comment or a question for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Follow Heather Havrileski on Twitter at h. Avraleski. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. And speaking of Twitter, Amir tweets, Yours is the only podcast I pay for, and it's well worth it. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Amir, for subscribing to the Magnum Edition. I thanked Amir on Twitter, and Eileen Thornton tweeted, I've never heard of a podcast that charges. We don't charge. We have two podcasts. One is totally free, the Savage Love Micro Edition. We did for years, 45, 50 minute Savage Love Cast. We heard from people, they wanted a longer show, they wanted a show without ads, they wanted a show with more guests, and then we decided to do a longer ad-free show for subscribers, and that is the Magnum edition that people can subscribe to. For information about subscribing to the Magnum or Savage Lovecast, go to savagelovecast.com. But the micro edition, as long as it ever was, is and always has been and still is free, and you can find the micro on iTunes and anywhere finer podcasts are served up. 
Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian, who held down the fort while I was away on vacation. Thank you, Nancy. Now, me and the tech savvy at-risk youth are going to get out of the studio and go out and enjoy the last of the summer days. But we will be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.